Welcome to Everyday Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Cynthia Thurlow. This podcast is designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to achieve your health and wellness goals. My goal and intent is to provide you with the best content and conversations from leaders in the health and wellness industry each week and impact over a million lives. Today, I had the honor of connecting with Dr. Chris Palmer, who is a psychiatrist and researcher working at the interface of metabolism and mental health. We dove deep into mental disorders and the connection with metabolic disease. We spoke about his background and the traditional focus of psychiatry, how he had a patient in 2016 that changed the trajectory of his career and the value of low-carb ketogenic diets, the role of mitochondria, mitochondrial dysfunction intergenerational transmission of trauma, the role of sleep and other lifestyle modalities, as well as Dr. Palmer's new definition of mental illness. I do believe this book is profoundly impactful, not just for clinicians, but also for patients and their families and allowing them to have a hopeful look towards the future. I hope you will enjoy this podcast as much as I did recording it. Well, Dr. Palmer, I've been so excited to have our conversation. I really think that your book is going to be an incredible resource, not just for providers, but also for patients as well. Thank you so much. And thanks for taking the time to read the book. And thanks for having me on your podcast. Absolutely. We serendipitously literally ran into one another at an event we both spoke at in Austin. And I know when you started talking about your book, the first thing I said was, oh, I have to bring you on the podcast because this is so relevant you know, looking at the lens of mental health through metabolic health, which makes so much sense. So I'd love to really start the conversation from a perspective of, did you know when you went to medical school that you were going to specialize in psychiatry? Was that the direction you were headed in? Or was this something that was serendipitous for you? It's a really good question. And uh, the real answer is it's a very long story. So I'll try to give you the very short version. So I struggled with my own mental health issues when I was young. My mother had very serious mental health issues, as well as some other people in my family. But my mother's experience with mental illness and with the mental health system had a profound influence on me. And I was actually quite angry with the mental health system. I saw the mental health system as incompetent and highly ineffective. And so many mental health clinicians, I just saw them as aloof snobs. And, you know, they just kind of, you know, put their nose up at you and, just, you know, ask you, how does that make you feel? And they try to distance themselves from you and not show their true emotions or their true selves. And I actually never liked that approach. And so that's where I came at it from. When I was in college, I actually thought about specializing in psychology. And many people actually talked me out of it, saying that, you know, there are too many psychologists, you'll never get a good job. So don't do that. And for a variety of reasons, I ended up deciding to go to medical school. And when I went to medical school, I actually had kind of no desire to go into psychiatry initially, although I was still deeply passionate about mental illness and how it can devastate people's lives and how we need better treatments and better solutions. But I was thinking I'll do internal medicine or pediatrics or something else. And when I did my psychiatry rotation, actually, in medical school, I was equally disappointed. I thought, oh, my God, what are they doing? They're not really helping these people at all. And I ended up winning some prizes for being like one of the top medical students. And I had so many professors 
tell me in no uncertain terms, don't go into psychiatry. It would be a waste of your career. And that actually ended up having the opposite reaction on me that they wanted. I actually thought to myself, is this why the outcomes are so poor in mental health? Because none of the good medical students go into psychiatry. Like it's all the not such good students. And maybe that field needs some smart people. And maybe I could actually do something and make a difference. And that's how I ended up in psychiatry. (laughs) No, but I'm so grateful because my experience, uh, so I was an ER nurse before I became an NP and I, the first hospital I worked at was right across from Shepherd Pratt. And for anyone that's listening, it's one of the mental health centers for the part of the Northeast that I was in. And we did a lot of their intake and I was able to see as a new clueless nurse sitting at triage and taking intake for the psychiatric hospital, I was completely astonished at the way patients were treated, the way that most of the psychiatrists interacted with them. And I used to pray, I worked at this Catholic hospital, so it'd be very appropriate for me to say, I used to pray that there were certain psychiatrists that were on call because several of them were incredibly compassionate and kind and really took good care of these ER patients. And some of them were not. And I remember saying to a colleague of mine, It's just unbelievable that we don't have more options that, you know, at that time, this was in the late 1990s. And I just recall that there were so few options for patients and their families. And I would have family members that would express concern, like just because my family member isn't saying that they want to hurt themselves or hurt someone else, they're being sent home with us, but clearly they need better care. And they felt even at that time that they were given the runaround. So I'm so very grateful to know that there are clinicians out there that are as kind, compassionate, and are really paving the way to change what has been a very traditional trajectory for psychiatry and medicine. And so perhaps paint the picture of when you entered psychiatry, what was the kind of traditional methodology that was utilized to treating and addressing psychiatric illnesses? Because I would imagine most listeners may not be familiar with this, that they haven't worked in the medical system or had a a family member that's been utilizing those services. So when I first started, I was being sold, you know, kind of a message that, oh, we're making so much progress. We're having rapid advances in the mental health field. We're discovering genetics and neurotransmitter imbalances and levels of inflammation And these things are going to make a huge difference for mental health patients. Within a couple of years of that, I quickly began to realize just, you know, any patient or family member asking me just basic common sense questions like, well, if it's a chemical imbalance, why don't the meds work right away? You know, what causes that chemical imbalance? Because it hasn't been there all along. Like this person was fine a month ago and now they're not fine. So what caused the imbalance? It can't be a genetic imbalance because if it was genetics, this person would have had it all along, right? And I'm sitting there thinking, yeah. Um, (laughs) And our field didn't have any answers. And very quickly, I got to a place that I felt comfortable in, told people the simple truth. No one knows what causes mental illness. And that has been really a huge part of the problem in the mental health field is that statement. No one knows what causes mental illness. All we know are some of the factors involved, like 
genetics, neurotransmitters, hormones, stress, trauma, um, sleep, drug use, all of these things we know play a role in different ways in different patients. But without knowing the exact cause, we have developed a lot of treatments that were usually discovered serendipitously. So for instance, the first antipsychotic medication, chlorpromazine, was actually developed as an anesthetic for surgery. And the researchers and clinicians using this noticed that it really significantly sedated people. They were called major tranquilizers and it really tranquilized people. And they thought, oh, you know, all of those psychotic patients, this might be really useful to tranquilize them in this way. And that's how we began developing, you know, and using those treatments. The researchers quickly just studied these molecules of these medications and tried to figure out what exactly are they doing. And then they developed more and more medications based on that model without any understanding of what these medications are doing and without any appreciation that for the majority of patients that these medications were being used in, it was not changing their lives and restoring health completely. It was reducing symptoms and make no mistake, I am not apologetic about this. It was keeping people alive. It was keeping people out of prisons and jails and homeless shelters. It was keeping people from assaulting other people. And those are really good things. So I don't think anybody in the mental health field had bad intentions in using these. They were the only tools that we had available. Antidepressants also were discovered serendipitously, believe it or not. The first, real, the first real antidepressant on the market was actually a tuberculosis treatment. And as they were using it in tuberculosis patients, the ones who were depressed were all of a sudden getting less depressed. And the clinicians treating them noticed that. And so, so many of the medications that we have, were, we don't even know how or why they work. We just know they kind of sort of work for some people. And so we use them. And sadly, our field has not progressed much since then, since the 1950s. We are shooting in the dark. We are using these treatments. Now, in addition to medications, treating chemical imbalances, we've also got uh, lots of psychotherapies, you know, psychodynamic psychotherapy or analysis. We've got behavioral therapies, and lots of others. And we use those and those work for some people as well. But again, if you look at the outcome statistics, they're not that great for people with chronic PTSD, for people with chronic depression, for people with personality disorders. We're not curing mental illness with any of these treatments. We've got more aggressive things like electroconvulsive therapy or shock therapy. We've got transcranial magnetic stimulation these days. They can implant an electrode and stimulate your vagus nerve. And that is a treatment that we've got. So we've got all of these treatments, but the real answer, and I don't say this to be pessimistic on purpose, the honest, real assessment is that our treatments fail to work for far too many people. And if you don't believe me, please answer the question, why are mental disorders now the leading cause of disability on the planet? It's not because people aren't getting treatment. It's because our treatments fail to work for far too many people. Mighty Maca is a superfood drink mix full of 30 plus natural ingredients. And it was formulated by Dr. Anna Kabeca during her healing journey. 
Mighty Maca Plus ingredients, which include nourishing ingredients like organic maca powder, turmeric, quercetin, broccoli, parsley, trans resveratrol, pomegranate extract, and more, were carefully selected for immune support to sustain energy, provide mental clarity, and improve recovery. It also tastes delicious. It supports healthy detoxification and alkalinity in the body, balances hormones, fights free radicals, and neutralizes lactic acid, all while increasing your energy and vitality. It helps improve your digestion and reignites your libido. It's a powerful superfood drink mix that needs to be part of your daily routine. And Dr. Anna is offering my listeners 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off your first per that's 10% off your first purchase by using the link DrAnna.com slash Cynthia. It's delicious and nutritious. A great deal about our focus on everyday wellness is on supporting gut health. And one of my new favorite ways to recommend to family and friends and even clients is to consider colostrum. And so Equip Foods has an amazing product that helps to improve immunity and gut health and recovery. And each scoop contains grass-fed, pasture-raised, antibiotic-free colostrum. And if you're wondering what colostrum is, it's a nutritional powerhouse that serves as the first source of nutrition for mammals in nature. It's been shown to enhance immune function, gut health, and recovery with vital nutrients such as lactoferrin, growth factors, and prolon-rich polypeptides. Colostrum is a natural milk-like fluid produced by mammals immediately following delivery of the newborn. And while colostrum is a dairy product, it does not contain milk or lactose. So most people with lactose intolerance usually find colostrum very easily digestible and beneficial to gut health. You can use one scoop a day. You can mix it in things like coffee or mix it in shakes or even yogurt or even some of your baked food recipes. As I mentioned, has a lot of health benefits, including research demonstrating the improvement in a reduction in inflammation, promoting good gut flora, and supporting restoring leaky gut to normal permeability. And what I love best is that Equip Foods is very ethically focused. Their cows are humanely raised and ethically treated, and cows produce an excess of colostrum when nursing. So only after their babies get what they need are they able to source the excess colostrum for use in their products. There is three grams of colostrum in each scoop and one serving in comparison to main competitors has just one gram. And research demonstrates that this dose of three grams actually promotes more benefits to gut health, immune function, recovery, and vitality. So if you'd love to take care of your health, you can go to www.equipfoods.com slash Cynthia20 to get 20% off your first order. That's www.equipfoods.com eqipfoods.com slash Cynthia 20. You definitely want to check this out. I think it's really a sobering statistic. And when I was reading your book, I had to kind of read it and absorb because as I'm looking at it as a clinician and understanding the way that we have conventionally looked at mental health is really missing the mark. Now you mentioned in the book that you had this patient that really changed everything for you. And I think this is a really powerful 
example of how metabolic health is intertwined with mental health. And I'd love for you to share your experience with that patient. Absolutely. So that really is where I was until 2016. I had actually been using low-carbon ketogenic diets due to my own experience. And I'd been using it with patients with depression for, you know, almost 20 years now. And, but, you know, depression is depression. It's, you know, that's, I don't know, a milder illness than this patient that I'll tell you about in 2016 who had schizoaffective disorder. So for your listeners who don't know that term, it's a cross between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. It's kind of a mix. The bottom line is this man was tormented by his illness. He had hallucinations and delusions He was convinced that everybody was out to get him. There were these powerful families in the world that had all this technology and they could control his thoughts. They could broadcast his thoughts. When he went out in public, he was convinced everybody was part of the conspiracy and they were all looking at him, mocking him or getting ready to harm him. And so life was terrifying for this man. He had tried 17 different medications, but they did not stop his symptoms. Instead, they made him gain a tremendous amount of weight. Weighing 340 pounds, he asked for my help to lose weight. I'm very familiar with ketogenic diet. So we decided to try the ketogenic diet. And at that time, I really was only trying to help the guy lose weight. I had no, even though I was using this for the treatment of depression, in my mind, depression is very different than schizoaffective. They have nothing to do with each other. And so I just wanted to help the guy lose weight. I'm hoping it might help his self-esteem or something and losing weight's a good thing anyway. And, you know, maybe decreases risk for all sorts of other metabolic disorders. And within two weeks, not only did he begin losing weight, but I started to notice a very powerful antidepressant effect. He was making better eye contact. He was smiling more. He was talking a lot more. And I kind of thought, wow, there's that antidepressant effect I've seen in other patients. It's happening for you. That's kind of nice but he was still having hallucinations and delusions. About six to eight weeks into the treatment, he spontaneously reported to me, you know, those voices that I hear all the time, they're actually going away. I'm barely hearing them. And sometimes when I hear them, I can ignore them now. I don't even let them bother me anymore. And it took a little bit longer. So the voices were the first thing to kind of go away. And then he said, you know how I always thought there were those powerful families that were controlling everybody and everything. And had these technologies and they targeted me. I'm like, yeah, I remember. And I'm thinking, yeah, I remember. And are we going to talk about that again? And he says, I kind of don't think that's true anymore. And now that I think about it, maybe it never was. Like, it sounds kind of crazy now that I say it out loud. And, you know, you and others have been trying to tell me for years that I have schizophrenia and that that's why I have these thoughts. And I never believed you. I always knew they were real. And now I'm starting to question that maybe they weren't real. Maybe they weren't real all along. And maybe I've had schizophrenia all along and it's actually starting to go away. That man went on to lose 160 pounds and keep it off to this day. He was able to do things he had never been able to do since the time of his diagnosis. He was able to go out in public and not be afraid. He was able to complete a college program. He was able to perform improv in front of a live audience. These things would have been impossible for him. And when that happened, I was initially just dumbstruck, but I went on a scientific journey to understand what just happened. That's such an incredibly powerful story. You know, when you share it in the book, And, you know, we're not taught in traditional allopathic medicine that nutrition is all that important. And I have come to find that it is the most important thing 
which is one of the reasons why I left cardiology. So what were some of the connections you started putting together that contributed to this miraculous change in your patient's behavior, views of themselves, weight loss, et cetera? So it's really interesting. You know, initially it was a little overwhelming for me because so the ketogenic diet is used as a weight loss intervention. I already knew that. It's also used for type 2 diabetes, and we have good randomized controlled trials for all of this stuff that I'm mentioning. It's not speculation. It's not anecdotes. These are evidence-based treatments based on randomized controlled trials. It's good for type 2 diabetes, but of course, obesity and type 2 diabetes are totally different than mental illness and certainly different than schizophrenia. And, but it's also used as an evidence-based treatment for epilepsy. And that was a really powerful clue to me initially. I hadn't realized it at that time. I knew about its use in weight loss and diabetes, had not realized it was an epilepsy treatment. And the reason that was so important to me as a psychiatrist is that we use epilepsy treatments every day in tens of millions of people. So for any of your listeners who've heard of the medications like Depakote, Tegretol, Lamictal, Topamax, Neurontin, or Gabapentin, Valium, Clonopin, Xanax, all of those are anti-seizure medicines. And the ketogenic diet can stop seizures even when those pills fail to work for people. So I immediately started realizing, wait, if the ketogenic diet can stop seizures, even when all of those pills that we use all the time in psychiatry aren't working, maybe that's why it's working for my patient. And in fact, we've got decades of neuroscience research telling us how this diet works on the brain. It changes and it's doing all the things we want it to do. It's changing neurotransmitter systems, changing hormones, certainly improving insulin resistance. It's decreasing inflammation and even decreasing brain inflammation. We have direct evidence of that. It's changing the gut microbiome. It's doing all sorts of things that, again, line up perfectly to be potentially a really important treatment for people with serious mental disorders, because we know people with serious mental disorders have hormonal imbalances. They have neurotransmitter problems, at least, or at least they have problems with the function of different brain regions. We know they have higher levels of brain inflammation on average. We know that the gut microbiome might be playing a role somehow or another in brain health. So we know that all these things are connected. So when I started realizing, wait, the ketogenic diet is doing all this stuff, and this is highly relevant to the mental health field, this is a no-brainer. It was extraordinarily exciting for me. I can just imagine. And you know, a lot of you know, inflammation, insulin resistance, weight loss resistance, mental health, nearly any chronic disease state is really a byproduct of dysfunctional mitochondria. And certainly my listeners are familiarized with this concept, the powerhouse of the cells, but I'd love for us to talk a little bit about the mitochondria as well as how this interplays vis-a-vis with mental health, because this will really bring this concept home for everyone that's listening. Everyone is impacted by this. There's no one listening that is not impacted by dysfunctional mitochondria to some degree or another, some more significant than others. Yeah. So it's a great question. And, you know, this is something that I dive more deeply into in the book, the science of mitochondria and all of the different roles they play. You know, up until 20... So one of the reasons that this is such an exciting advance is because I'm integrating a tremendous amount of clinical and neuroscience research from the mental health field. But I'm also looking at 
tremendous amounts of science from the metabolic health field and from even just like the aging field, like anti-aging researchers. And interestingly, all of these fields are converging on these things that we call mitochondria. All of them are converging on mitochondria in one way or another. And so one of the reasons that this is such a revolutionary breakthrough is because 20 years ago, we really just thought mitochondria were stationary powerhouses. We just thought that they were in cells and they cranked out, they took your food and used oxygen appropriately and cranked out ATP. And some people even called them little batteries. And there are some researchers still to this day that use that term. And they've used it right in front of me. And I almost want to smack them because I'm like, <laughs> you do not know mitochondria. You, how dare you say such a horrible, insulting thing about mitochondria? They are not little batteries. But you know, 20 years ago, we didn't know. Over the last 20 years, there has been an explosion of research looking at all of the roles that mitochondria play. And the more that I learned about these various roles, the more excited I became because they are roles that play a direct role in mental health. And we've known it for decades. So for example, mitochondria play actually a direct role in both the production and the release of neurotransmitters, like at least eight of them. And so if mitochondria become dysfunctional there's a good chance that neurotransmitter production and or release is going to become altered or dysfunctional. Mitochondria play a central role in hormone production and release. And there are a few really critically important hormones that mitochondria are actually instrumental in producing. And the reason is because they have the enzyme that controls the synthesis, the first step in the synthesis of these hormones. And that means that mitochondria are instrumental in controlling how much of this hormone gets produced and how much of it gets released. And these names are names you're going to know. Cortisol, estrogen, testosterone, progesterone. Those are all hormones that begin in mitochondria and in other cells that receive or the targets of these hormones, mitochondria are often the end point. So cortisol, for instance, can begin in mitochondria in one type of cell and end in mitochondria in another type of cell. And so one way to think about hormones is actually a way for the mitochondria and different cells to communicate with each other. There are many other forms of communication, neuropeptides and other molecules Mitochondria also play an instrumental role in, for instance, inflammation. And some very prominent research articles, especially over the last five to 10 years, have actually determined that mitochondria are instrumental in turning inflammation on, but they're also instrumental in turning inflammation off in the human body. And what that means is that if your mitochondria are dysfunctional, you may have problems turning on an appropriate inflammatory response, but you may also have problems turning it off. And so like everybody has heard of COVID and how some people are dying of COVID. And one of the primary 
reasons or hypotheses for why some people die and other people don't is because they get this exaggerated inflammatory response. They get a hyperinflammation that doesn't turn off. And it actually is extraordinarily aggressive, out of control, and people die from more from the inflammatory response than the infection itself. And mitochondria turn inflammation off. So if you have dysfunctional mitochondria in particular in your immune cells, they're not going to turn the inflammatory reaction off at an appropriate time and you are going to suffer. You're going to have symptoms or a disease process or something going on. I'll stop there because I could probably keep going on forever. But essentially, the big picture that I took away of these years of research is that mitochondria are actually instrumental players in controlling the function of cells, that they are in fact kind of, you know, one term that gets used by others and myself in the book is they're the workforce of the cell. They're kind of like the workers in a factory. And if the workers in a factory aren't performing properly, that factory is going to suffer in some way. And the products that that factory is trying to turn out are going to suffer in some way. And that's the way I think about it. I think that's such a a beautiful analogy to make the point really clear that we want to have our mitochondria optimized, if at all possible, not only just for metabolic health, but also vis-a-vis for also mental health. And one of the things I found really interesting, and you know, I can completely nerd out, and I very appropriately told Dr. Palmer before we started recording that I always have a good amount of podcast prep, but I had twice the amount I normally do because there was so much information in the book that really was very interesting. As an example, when we're talking about depression and we're talking about dysfunctional mitochondria, we have decreased ATP production. So this is this energy within our cells. We know that we have changes in the hippocampus, which is, you know, part of the brain that, you know, can impact the, well, you may explain this better than I do, but my understanding hippocampus, if that's impacted, that can impact energy levels, perception of reality. There was a rat study that was showing that there were fewer mitochondria and anxious rats, which makes sense. And the differences in the way their mitochondria used oxygen to turn energy into ATP. And so again, it's really reaffirming that our mitochondria health, mitochondrial health is critically important for mental health. Absolutely. So, you know, there are so many ways to nerd out about this. And one of the tricky things is that mitochondria in different cells are different from each other. So what that means is that you can have healthy mitochondria in one part of your body or in certain types of cells, and you can have dying or struggling mitochondria in other types of cells. And what that means is that the rest of your body can be reasonably okay and functioning relatively well, but the cells that have increasingly defective mitochondria or suboptimally functioning mitochondria, whatever term we wanna use, that those are the cells that are gonna start to show symptoms of dysregulation or dysfunction. And at the end of the day, that's really what illness is, is dysfunction of cells. Although this all sounds like brand new or cutting edge, or maybe even like Chris Palmer's making stuff up, this, you know, this, the mitochondrial theory of bipolar disorder 
depression and schizophrenia have been around for about 20 years. I'm standing on the shoulders of a tremendous number of brilliant researchers who have all done this pioneering work. I don't deserve credit, certainly not fully, for this theory. I, you know, science is a team effort and teamwork, and a lot of people coming together. And so in many ways, it's nothing new. And the mitochondrial theory of mental illness was actually developed because of all those brain scans that we've been doing for decades, you know, you know, like spec scans and PET scans and functional MRI. Everybody's heard of those and they know that, oh, they, they do that kind of research all the time in the mental health field and they can identify abnormalities in this part of the brain or that part of the brain. And all of those brain scans are actually measuring brain metabolism. And when they've gotten down to specific molecules or differences, that's where they've started to identify like, wait, these cells have less ATP than they should. The healthy people have higher levels of ATP than these people or glucose metabolism. Glucose metabolism is impaired in these brain regions, in these people with mental or neurological disorders. And this goes for disorders like Alzheimer's disease, but surprisingly also depression, bipolar and schizophrenia, but also surprisingly alcoholism. So people with alcoholism over years, once they have the full-fledged illness of alcoholism or alcohol use disorder, as we call it in DSM-5, they actually have brain regions that aren't getting enough energy from glucose. So all of those brain scans have shown metabolic abnormalities and some really brilliant researchers looked at all of these different metabolic abnormalities and came to the conclusion, the only way that these can fit together is through mitochondria. And we have to understand mitochondria and what's happening in mitochondria in order to make sense of all of these abnormalities that we're seeing on all of these brain scans. It's really interesting when you get this convergence of technology with you know, clinical medicine and you're able to ascertain some of these connections. I want to pivot just a little bit because I think there's been more and more research that I've been becoming more aware of in terms of trauma and talking about intergenerational transmission of trauma. And you do a really nice job within the book. And so I'd like to at least look at the impact of intergenerational trauma and how that could show up in mental health issues and concerns, not just with the existing generation, but future generations as well. Yeah, no, I'm happy to dive into that. And it brings up a really important point that I just want to highlight. This, the brain energy theory, a lot of people are like, well, you're just a biological psychiatrist, Chris Palmer. You're just interested in mitochondria and that's biology and cell biology. But this question speaks to the bigger issue of this theory, that this theory looks at psychological and social factors and ties them into human biology and brain health and brain biology, but also overall biology. And so there's been a tremendous amount of research over many decades now documenting that people who have horrible trauma histories are more likely to have children with psychiatric disorders. And interestingly, for the detailed studies that have followed generations, 
their children's children. Like it goes at least three generations. So, and this started actually shortly after the Holocaust in about the 1950s. There was a psychiatrist who noticed like, I have all of these patients whose parents were in the concentration camps. It was the parents. The kids weren't in the concentration camp. And yet the parents aren't in my office seeking psychiatric help. It's their kids who are in my office seeking psychiatric help. And I'm sure she probably struggled with, is it just because I'm Jewish and a lot of Jewish people are sending their kids to Like, what is this? Why is this happening? I'm just noticing an awful lot of, you know, children of Holocaust survivors are now coming to my office with all sorts of serious mental disorders. And that field ended up exploding. And early on, everybody assumed, well, it, the parents must be suffering from PTSD themselves and or maybe they're horribly depressed themselves and that's rubbing off on the kids. Maybe they weren't good parents. Maybe they weren't nurturing parents. And maybe that's why the kids are the way they are is these are traumatized, numb parents for obvious good reasons, like no judgment, please don't at all read into that, that I'm blaming them. They survived horrific, horrific experiences and how could they not be numb and traumatized and, you know, depressed, but that that rubbed off on their kids and made their kids mentally ill. And that was the working hypothesis for decades. A lot of people didn't even believe it. The ones who believed it thought, well, it must be the parent. They're somehow being bad parents or they're teaching their kids to be afraid of the world. You know, they're teaching them, don't go out in public, don't trust anyone. You can never trust any human beings. They're all evil scum at the end of the day. And in the night, about the 1980s, that began to change because we started to measure levels of cortisol in people with mental illness and began to recognize that people with mental illness have dysregulation in their cortisol system, which means that, so normally we all have spikes, you know, peaks and valleys in our cortisol level throughout the day. You know, cortisol goes up in the morning and then comes down. But in a lot of people with mental illness, cortisol is up and it stays up throughout the day. It doesn't go through normal fluctuations. And so it's almost like the stress response is fully on all the time, is never turning off. It's not ebbing and flowing like it should. And for a couple of decades, actually, biological psychiatrists were excited. They were thinking, finally, we have a test for mental illness, and we are going to have an objective biomarker that we can draw blood and do some, you know, dexamethasones, the suppression tests in people and objectively diagnose mental illness. Unfortunately, that did not pan out, not because people with mental illness don't have this dysregulation of cortisol, but because it is highly nonspecific and it turns out some people with mental illness actually have abnormally low levels of cortisol. It's almost as though their cortisol system burns out for some reason. And so we know that we actually now know with genetics and epigenetics that parents have epigenetic changes in their stress response system and cortisol system. And they actually can transmit that to their kids. It's, so it's not a change in genetics, but it's a change in epigenetics. And parents can transmit this to their kids, which means that if your parents had a trauma history or even your grandparents had a trauma history, you are more likely to have a sensitized, heightened 
stress response, which in some ways biologically might be adaptive. So for a family or a class of citizens that are chronically oppressed, and this has been around forever, you know, since society has existed, we had people who were put into slavery a thousand years ago. And we we have continued that trend, unfortunately, even to this day in some countries and some societies, there are horribly abused, traumatized people who are enslaved, essentially. But it's interesting that biology is transmitting that from mother and father to child to grandchild. And I'm not trying to justify oppression of people or races. I by no means, please do not interpret that what I'm going to say in that way. But it may be that biology recognizes the world is a really unsafe place for you. Biology needs to protect your child. And biology needs to make it so that they aren't trusting of other people because people aren't trustworthy. If they're enslaving you, maybe they're going to try to enslave your children. And we need to make your children have higher levels of fear, have higher levels of stress responses in order to protect them from such an unsafe, dangerous world. Those are just some of the ways. there There are actually lots of other ways that parents can transmit trauma through messenger or microRNA molecules and the womb environment and all sorts of other things. But I'll stop there. I've been using MitoPure for the last two years, and I've added this to my routine for multiple reasons. Number one, it's a foundational supplement for me and my family. It keeps things simple, and I know that I cannot get enough of urolithin A in my food to derive the same benefits. And if you're not familiarized with urolithin A, it's a signaling molecule, but it's also actively involved in anti-aging, energy production. And I take Timeline because of its remote remarkable healthy aging solution that activates key critical cellular pathways in my body. It's a total game changer for healthy aging. I alternate between using the soft gels and powder depending on whether or not I'm traveling. And we know that restoring cellular energy is a key to enduring health. And this is concluded in a recent publication in Nature Metabolism, which is a top scientific journal identifying that newly energized cells may provide many more years of healthy life to people. Yet as we age, we know that cellular energy production naturally declines and reduces our prospects of optimal health and longevity. That's the great thing about Timeline is you can restore cellular energy and support healthy aging. I've noticed the biggest improvements in my energy and sleep levels. We know that Timeline is clinically shown to give our cellular energy generators, the mitochondria, new power. And when taken daily, it replaces aging mitochondria. So it upregulates mitophagy and rebuilds new ones or mitogenesis. Timeline is the only nutrient that can do what it does. So Timeline renews your cells to a more powerful state. My listeners can get 10% off your first order at Timeline dot com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off at timeline.com slash Cynthia. I know you're going to love this product. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise. So you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, 
exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one, interpreting your data, and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer-term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. You know, I'd never considered that biology was adapting to protect that next generation by heightening their stress response and kind of reframing it to look at it as a protective mechanism as as opposed to something that's entirely negative. I also found it really interesting that you talk about how you can actually pass along these epigenetic changes via sperm. So actually when there's implantation of, you know, taking the the ovum and and the the sperm itself. And so it can be imprinted, like again, can also be another way of imprinting this information because I, you know, lived in a very multicultural area in Washington, DC. And so I had the ability to work with, you know, thousands of patients from many different cultures. And over time you get to know your patients and they would share things with you. And although at the time I was not making those connections, I can now retrospectively see how, you know, someone that was oppressed in another country comes to the United States and, you know, they're conditioned to make sure that their children don't experience what they did, but then they're seeing distressing symptoms and distressing things in their own children and wondering why this is happening. So that can certainly make sense. I'd love to talk about sleep. Obviously, this is something that I think is truly foundational to our health in every way possible, but let's tie in how sleep also interplays with mental health. So yeah, it is. we have known for decades, probably centuries, that sleep deprivation can trigger pretty much every mental illness. So if somebody already has a mental illness, sleep deprivation can make it worse. And it's across the board. So somebody with a substance use disorder, somebody with depression, somebody with anxiety, somebody with psychosis, if you sleep deprive them, 
the symptoms of their illness, whether it's addiction or anxiety or psychotic symptoms or mood symptoms will get worse. But we also have a tremendous amount of evidence that sleep deprivation in and of itself can cause mental illness. Interestingly, sleep deprivation also plays a profound role in metabolic health, obesity, diabetes, and cardiovascular disease. Those are kind of the three disorders that most people accept as metabolic disorders. And sleep deprivation makes all of them worse as well. And so in order to understand that, we have to, again, at least for me, I wanted to try to understand that at the cellular level, like what on earth is happening? How can we make sense of this? Because, you know, we give these disorders different labels and certainly they're very different symptoms. I mean, drinking alcohol is not anywhere the same thing as having a heart attack. They're totally different things. And most people would think those aren't at all related to each other whatsoever. And yet... When you go to the level of the cell and the level of mitochondria, you can actually begin to connect all of these dots and you can begin to understand why does sleep deprivation make both of those disorders worse? Why does stress make both of those disorders worse? And the intersection point is mitochondria. And so sleep deprivation, you know, mitochondria are regulated by lots of things, but they are regulated in part through our circadian rhythms and sleep is a big part of that. You know, I'll speak just broadly because we could, I could nerd out and go into all these molecular things and that's not really probably of too much interest to people. The big picture is that, you know, sleep is a time when our cells are repairing themselves. They actually go into a metabolic state and one of the primary purposes is repair. So your cells, as the day goes on, actually accumulate waste products your cells are kind of busy just trying to keep up doing what they're supposed to be doing whenever you call on them to do something, whether that's your muscle cells, whether it's your brain cells, your heart cells, any of them, they are busy doing on demand, ready to go, working their butts off, doing what they need to do. But things can back up and waste products can start to back up. And that's one of the reasons it appears that humans need sleep is the time when we go off, you know, into a lower metabolic state overall, but that's when a lot of the housekeeping functions of cells takes place. And so that's when like some of your brain cells are actually getting rid of, if they've accumulated any beta amyloid plaque for a little while, they're actually starting to get rid of it and process it and degrade it. And that's actually getting drained out of the lymphatic system of your brain and being disposed of appropriately. If you don't get sleep, those systems back up and your cells can actually get to a state of disrepair. This appears to also include mitochondria. Mitochondria can become dysfunctional for a variety of reasons. You know, they are powerhouses and so they're burning food and they've got lots of electrons flowing through all these membranes. And these electrons are actually kind of, you could think about them almost like acid if you want. Electrons are very powerful and necessary and the system we, the biology has is amazing and miraculous and spectacular and all of that. And yet these electrons, if they are not managed appropriately, can become quite toxic. 
And that's, they are the source of what's called reactive oxygen species um, or oxidative stress. And that can cause cellular damage and can cause inflammation in the body and brain. So mitochondria, because they are these hot powerhouses in a way, can become more dysfunctional as well unto themselves. They need either to repair themselves and or they need to be eliminated if they are really damaged beyond repair and replaced with new ones. If you're not sleeping, that's not happening, which means that over time, your mitochondria, as well as other parts of your cell and other membranes and molecules, are your mitochondria are going to become dysfunctional. And then that can cause a whole host of diseases, both metabolic and mental diseases, things like heart attacks, your blood sugars can skyrocket from insulin resistance and from type two diabetes, but also you can get depressed or anxious or feel this overwhelming urge to go drink alcohol or become psychotic or become agitated. I think it's really important. You know, one thing I have learned is that lifestyle really is critically important for physical and emotional and mental health. And, you know, your explanation about sleep and how critically important that is anyone that's listening, if you're not getting good quality sleep, you need to figure out why and you need to address it because with the rampant amount of obesity, metabolic disease that we're starting to really see, it's most of the bulk of the population vis-a-vis also mental health issues. This is a very important part of becoming healthier. Now, I'd love to kind of tie in, you have this new definition of mental illness and I thought this was really interesting that, you know, looking at the traditional DSM, which for anyone who's listening is, and I may not give it as much justice as you would, but it was kind of the clinical standard of this is how we define mental illness. This is where we put it into a bucket. You know, you have to hit these certain characteristics in order to get this appropriate diagnosis. but you are proposing a new definition, which I think is much more encompassing and much more comprehensive. Thank you. The quick overview is, you know, first and foremost, we have to distinguish between what is a mental illness and what is a normal reaction to adversity. And right now, DSM doesn't do that. And the reason it's so important is because one state, so the symptoms can be identical. People can have the constellation of symptoms that we call depression. So depressed mood, disrupted sleep, poor concentration, changes in appetite, all of those kind of things, and even suicidal thinking. So there are some human situations that our brains are hardwired to trigger that response and help it, you know, the appropriate response from the medical field or just from other people who want to help is to help that person cope with the adversity that they just experienced. It's not to just automatically just run out and say, let's put you on a pill because you have a disorder, you have a brain disorder right now. But there are other people who clearly have brain disorders. So let me give you just a clear cut example of this. So let's say I'm looking at a man and he has a wife and two children and his wife and two children are tragically killed in an auto accident. That man is going to get depressed very quickly, immediately. And I would argue that is not a brain disorder. That is not major depressive disorder. It is not a disorder. It is a normal human reaction called grief. And the appropriate response from society is to 
allow that man to grieve, to gather around him, to support him, to understand that he is devastated. His world has just been upended. He has lost his support system. He has lost people that he adores and loves and cherishes. And his whole life is upended. And of course, he's depressed. Does he have a serotonin imbalance? No, he doesn't have a serotonin imbalance. He's struggling right now with horrible adversity. According to DSM, he's allowed to be depressed for 13 days. And then if he's still depressed on day 14, then he has a brain disorder called major depressive disorder. And of course, we lump that major depressive disorder in with everyone else who has even chronic crippling depression for no reason at all. And we assume that his major depression is the same as somebody else's. And so I would say we first need to look at stress reactions, normal responses to adversity. You know, this is very important to the trauma community. I think people who have experienced trauma often feel pathologized for having the emotions and thoughts that they have, and they actually are outraged or feel at least insulted by it because they feel that they are having normal reactions and that they should not be pathologized and or necessarily medicated automatically. I'm not anti-medication in these cases. And if medications can help people sleep or calm down and that's beneficial to them, I'm all for it. But we have to acknowledge like this is not a brain disorder. This is a suffering wounded individual, at least a psychologically wounded individual, and we need to support them. But there are other people who do have major depressive disorder, and I'm convinced of it as a psychiatrist. There is no doubt in my mind it is real and it exists. And in fact, Hippocrates talked about it. He called it melancholia. So this has been around for centuries, millennia, and it's been well described for millennia that there are people who are just depressed all the time for no good reason. And they'll even say that to, to me as a psychiatrist. They'll say, I don't know what's wrong with me. My life is actually a good life. I have a loving family. I have a decent job. I'm well off. And for some reason, I'm just miserable. I don't know why I can't snap out of this. I don't want to feel this way. I shouldn't feel this way, but I do. Can you help me? And I think those people do have a brain disorder. So that's step one, separating normal responses to adversity, you know, from brain disorders. Step two is then looking at brain disorders. What do we call them? The thing that I actually love about this theory is it answers so many questions that we've not been able to answer in the mental health field. So it might be surprising to people because, you know, on the surface, it makes sense that we have schizophrenia and bipolar and depression and alcoholism and anorexia nervosa. Those are all very different disorders with very different symptoms and different treatments needed. And on the surface, that makes sense. But if you look at any one patient with anorexia, turns out patients with anorexia often also have depression and anxiety, maybe even some substance use issues. And they can often get diagnosed with borderline personality disorder or even bipolar disorder. And so they start to actually, all the disorders start to mix and match and merge. And, you know, one large study looking at people treated in mental health clinic, on average, people have three and a half diagnoses. And so these are not as distinct brain disorders and entities as everybody makes them out to be. And 
when you look at root causes of brain disorders and mental illness, like this cortisol dysregulation that I mentioned, if you just look at that cortisol dysregulation, like what exactly is that associated? Which mental disorders is that associated with? Turns out it's associated with all of them, every single one. Bipolar, schizophrenia, depression, PTSD, eating disorders, <laughs> substance use disorders. It's associated with all of them. So when we look at the root causes, they actually don't easily go to any specific diagnosis. And so instead, I am arguing that we need to look at mental illness as a metabolically compromised brain. And what that means is that there are parts of your brain that are not functioning properly. Why are they not functioning properly? Because of metabolic dysfunction or dysregulation. And that, you know, depending on what brain region is compromised, you're going to have different symptoms. And it's that simple. Now, it doesn't mean that symptomatic treatments or specific treatments for specific behaviors or emotions can't be really helpful because I think they can be extraordinarily helpful and useful. So sending an alcoholic to Alcoholics Anonymous is a really powerful intervention. Should everybody with every mental disorder go to Alcoholics Anonymous? No, absolutely not, because they're not having that symptom of the illness, of a brain illness. So I do think that we have specific treatments that can be enormously helpful for people with different symptoms or disorders right now. But the easiest way to look at this is metabolic dysfunction. And once we understand that, we can develop broad-based treatments that many of you already know about, diet, exercise, sleep, you know, managing substance use, stress reduction, all of these things that can actually have important and dramatic and beneficial effects on all of the mental disorders. And in case it sounds like Chris Palmer has gone off the deep end and I'm just making stuff up and how dare he go against DSM-5, who does he think he is? And I can see why some of you might think that. I am not alone. The National Institutes of Health abandoned DSM diagnoses over a decade ago because they recognized everything that I just said. They are not valid diagnoses. Even though on the surface they make sense, they are not valid diseases. They're not valid constructs. And you know, one of the really important messages of this is that right now we tell people with schizophrenia, you have a lifelong brain disorder and you're gonna be on meds forever. My theory says otherwise. My theory says they have a metabolically compromised brain and we can figure out based on strategies and tools that we have available today, we can figure out how to restore their brain health and put that illness into remission. That's incredibly powerful. Dr. Palmer, thank you for your work. Thank you for giving so many listeners and their families hope please let my listeners know how to connect with you. Obviously, this podcast episode will be dropped right when your book comes out. Let them know how to connect with you on social media. Thank you so much. So people can go to a website, brainenergy.com to learn more about the book, but also get involved with this whole new approach to the mental health field and helping people recover as opposed to just treating symptoms. So brainenergy.com. You can also go to my website, chrispalmermd.com and learn more. And I'm most 
probably active on Twitter. So you can follow me there, Chris Palmer, MD. And I think those are some of the best ways to check out what I'm up to. Awesome. Thank you so much for our conversation. Thank you, Cynthia. It was really a pleasure to be here. If you love this podcast episode, please leave a rating and review, subscribe and tell a friend. 